How many of you grew up in the 80s? Any of you have parents? You were parents in the 1980s. Do you remember what these were called or still are called? Transformers. And I've, I've never really understood the fascination with all these parts and pieces. If you're not familiar, you can take the supposed robot looking creature and then twist all the pieces and create a car or something, right? And I would do that for you with this transformer, except there's two problems. One, I can't figure out how to do it, and I broke it trying. (laughs) But since 1984, the toy maker Hasbro has been producing these transformers, and they're sometimes called GoBots or something else. And that morphed into a whole series of animated TV shows, movies, and so on, to the tune today of it's a 25 billion with a B billion dollar industry. Stupid transformers. I don't get it. I don't get the fascination. I don't get the interest. But we're going to talk this morning about transformation. That's a, that's our goal. But before I get there, I want to back up and review with you where we've been over the last 3 Sundays. So over the last three Sundays, Pastor Oscar has been kind of unfolding for us our vision for the future, what we believe, what God wants to do here in this place. And we've suggested to you that we want to embrace a fresh expression of what our purpose here is. What's our mission? What's our passion? And we've tried to express that in a simple sentence that you have all memorized and understand today, right? Because we're declaring to our community and embracing together as a family here that our purpose, our mission, our passion is to help people experience the hope that's found in a life-changing relationship with Jesus. Can you all say that with me? We're here to help people experience the hope that's found in a life-changing relationship with Jesus. Steve, come here. So Steve and I have just gotten on the elevator, and Steve has turned around, and I go, hey, that's a cool shirt. Where do you go to church? And Steve, of course, would say, I go to church at Hope City Church. There you go. So what's that church all about? Jesus. You would say that. I know you. You would say Jesus. But then what would you say? Well, our church exists to help people experience the hope. That's found in a, I feel like a ventriloquist here. (laughs) The hope that's found in a life-changing relationship with Jesus. So that's the elevator speech. Thank you. So, Steve did a great job, didn't he? Of course, if I'm the ventriloquist, then he's the... (laughs) Sorry, Steve and I love each other. I can get away with that. So that's what we, we want to embrace as our purpose and our mission. And our hope is that you find yourself in a context with somebody where you live, where you work, your neighborhood, that you can be able to express in that one simple sentence, our church exists to help people experience the hope that's found in a life-changing relationship with Jesus. And hopefully, the person you're having conversation with will say, what's that all about? And then you can share kind of your story. So that's where we started foundationally. 
And then we introduced the idea of a new name for our church, Hope City. Hope City Church. We want the reputation of this family of believers in the city of Norwalk to be known as what? A place of hope. There's a city not too far from us that has a kind of a tagline to the name of their city. And the, the tagline says, Surf City. And you all, of course, know what city that is, right? Huntington Beach. Why have they chosen that tagline, Surf City? Because that's what they want to be known for. If you want to surf, you want to go to Huntington Beach. Oh, by the way, where are the national and international surf competitions held every year? Huntington Beach. Why are they held there? That's Surf City. So when I was surfing back in my junior high years, I started in Long Beach, got good enough, I moved down the coast to Seal Beach, and when I thought I was ready, we finally graduated to the real beach, because then we went to Surf City, Huntington Beach. And so we want to be known as a place where people can find hope. We live in a world that's hopeless. We live in a world that desperately needs hope. And so we've chosen a name that expresses that. What do we want to be known for? Hope. That's what it's all about. And so Pastor Oscar shared with us then that we have these five values that we want to embrace together. Five Five values that give us a sense of this is what we're hoping to accomplish as we go into the future. The first value is what? It's in front of you. Can't miss it, right? Love how? Unconditionally. We want this to be a place where we love God and love others. That's what it's all about. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love others. Love your neighbors yourself. And so we want people to come here and not find judgment, not find condemnation, but find compassionate care and love. We want to be a church marked by unconditional love. The second value is what? We, this was last Sunday, right? Reach intentionally. Because we live in a world that lacks hope, because we live in a world that needs to know about the hope that's found in a life-changing relationship with Jesus, right? We want to be a church that is actively reaching out into our community. That's our hope, our dream, our prayer, and our goal. That's where we've been. Today, we want to look at our third value. Our third value is we want to be a church that's marked by teaching transformationally. We want to be communicating God's Word in a way that changes lives. It's all about change, transformation. If you can come here every single Sunday or participate in some of our midweek opportunities, and a year goes by and five years go by and you're the same person you were before, we're not accomplishing what we want to do. Our prayer and hope and ambition is that each person who comes and finds hope at Hope City will find themselves in a process of transfer, transformation, growing, becoming more and more what God wants us to be. God loves you like you are, right? But guess what? He loves you too much to leave you the way you are. And, and, and we want that to be a hallmark of who we are. So this morning, I want to talk with you a little bit 
about this thing of, of transformation. Our family of churches, from their very beginning in 1608 in Schwarzenau, Germany, all of you knew that date and place, I know, I'm just kind of reminding you. Ever since our family of churches began in the early 1600s in Germany, there has been a motto that has been a part of our family of churches for over 400 years. And that motto is what? There, I heard someone's get it started. The Bible, the whole Bible, and nothing but the Bible. That has been a hallmark of who we are as Christ followers for over 400 years. And so this morning I want you to think with me about this whole thing of, of transformation. Because the scriptures talk uh, broke it again. If you, if you have a kid who's good at fixing what old people break, that, that's good. So I want to share with you three kind of ideas this morning. I want to talk with you, first of all, about the plan of transformation. God has a plan to transform you, to change you. We want to talk about that. And then I want to share a little bit about the process of transformation. How does that happen? How does that take place? What's the, what's the process? And then I want to talk a little bit about the product. What's the result of this process of transformation? What might a transformed person look like? And so that's where we want to go. What's God's plan? What's the process? And what might it look like when it's all said and done? So I want you to take your Bibles this morning. Turn with me to Romans chapter 12. Because it's in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, that the Apostle Paul tells us, I think, very, very pointedly and clearly that God has a plan to transform our lives. And so as you come to Romans chapter 12, this is what we're going to find. Paul has written 11 chapters of truth, doctrine. He's talked about sin. He's talked about the need of salvation. He's talked about salvation. He's talked about growing and maturing in our faith, becoming what God wants us to be. And the Apostle Paul opens chapter 12 with the word, therefore. Based on everything that he said in the first 11 chapters, he says, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. Recognize that word? Be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. It was the evangelist Dwight L. Moody who said, God has not given us the Scriptures for our information. He's given us the Scriptures for our transformation. That's why in the book of Hebrews, in chapter 4, it says that the Scriptures are alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. And it says it's a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. It is the Scriptures that God wants to use to transform your life and my life. J.B. Phillips has written a paraphrase of portions of the New Testament that I like a lot. And his paraphrase, I think I left it for you in your notes if you have your notes this morning. But his paraphrase says this about Romans 12 too. 
Do not let the world around you squeeze you into its mold. Is your culture trying to do that to you? Every day. Over and over again. Do not let the world around you squeeze you into its mold. Because what we need is to have our minds remolded by God. That's what we need. You and I live in a culture that oftentimes has been described as secular humanism. And so the values that I have, and hopefully the values that you have as you come here on a Sunday morning, are different from the values of the world you and I live in. Radically different. And the sad reality is, you and I are being impacted, shaped, and molded every day to accept the truths of that worldview. The secular, humanistic, man-centered worldview. That worldview tells you the goal of life, the greatest end to your life, the ambition of your life, is happiness. Whatever it takes to make you happy, that's what you pursue. Happiness is the goal of life. Is that the goal that God has for you and for me? Now, we could talk about the difference between happiness and joy, and that's a whole other message. But God calls you and me to a life of holiness. He calls us to a life to live like Jesus. That's why this value of teaching transformationally, we express the idea that we want to help people become faithful followers of Jesus. The world you and I live in tells us, first of all, the goal, number one goal in your life is to be happy. The second thing our culture is telling us is that the ultimate guide for all that you believe, for all that you embrace, for all that you choose to do, is your feelings. How you feel guides you. And so back in the 60s, I think it was the 60s, uh, we had this saying, if it feels good, do it. And that philosophy continues today. People live their lives guided by their feelings. And our culture tells us that's the way it ought to be. Your feelings determine the direction of your life. Your feelings determine what you choose to do and don't do. And so if I feel that this is right... I'm going to do it. Scriptures say, oh, the the culture says, follow your heart. Follow your heart. Doesn't that sound like a great idea? Follow your heart? Well, unless you read your Bible. What does the Bible say? The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Follow your heart? That's not too bright. So your culture says the ultimate goal is your happiness. The, the guide to your life, ultimately, is your feelings. And then thirdly, our culture tells us, the greatest sin that you can commit, the greatest wrong that you can do, is to judge someone else for what they do and believe. If you judge me for what I do and believe, then, you know, you're... Get off, get off the list of words. What are they? You're a bigot. You're this. You're that. What, you know, 
the scripture has a different view of what the greatest sin is, right? The greatest sin is to miss God's offer of forgiveness and eternal life through His Son, Jesus. But the world you and I live in that wants to squeeze us into that mold says, you want to be happy, your feelings determine the course of your life, and the worst thing you can possibly do is to judge other people for what they do and believe. The fourth value that my culture is screaming uh, every day is your goal is happiness, your guide is your feelings, your sin is judgment, and the greatest guess in life is God. Nobody knows the truth about God. Everybody has their opinion. We have these different religions, these different beliefs. And if you can create a God of your own making and your own heart and mind of what you think He ought to be like, that's your guess. And if I want to believe in a God who left us with Scriptures, that's my guess. There's no final authority, no final truth. The culture you and I live in is working to squeeze us into that mold every day. By the way, what are the prime drivers of that message? Where do you hear that message every day? Media, thank you. I was hoping someone would remember the M word. So it comes to us through Hollywood, television programs, movies. Well, there's another kind of media in our culture today that wasn't around when I was growing up. Social media. So, I get blasted with Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. If you play around on TikTok, that's slamming you all the time. And there's others that I don't even know about and don't care. But my point is this. The culture in which you and I live is seeking to mold us. Our beliefs and our behavior, our convictions and our conduct. And Paul says, in the words of J.B. Phillips, do not let the world around you squeeze you into its mold. Paul goes on to say that your mind needs to be remolded by God. How does that happen? That's why God's given us this book. Paul says in Romans 8, 28 and 29, God causes all things to work together for good, to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. Most of us either have memorized that verse or have a rough paraphrase that we work with. But, verse 28, surprise, is followed by verse 29. And verse 29 says, those that He predestined, He predestined us to be conformed to the image of His Son. And so what God is up to, while the culture around us is trying to squeeze us into this mold, shaping us to accept and believe the the ideas that I've just suggested... What God wants to accomplish is He wants to make me and you just a little bit more like Jesus every day.
That's what God wants to do. And so, as we talk about teaching transformationally, that's the goal. Become more like Jesus. And I've often wondered, when, when my life is over and done, you know, and, and I see Jesus, the Scripture says, John chapter 3, verse 2, says, little children... It does not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when we see Him, we will be like Him because we will see Him as He is. So will there be a point in time where I become like Jesus? Yes. (laughs) When I see Him, I'll be like Him, for I will see Him as He is. And so I've often wondered, when that When that instant happens, I see Jesus and I become just like Him. How much transformation will have to take place for me to be like Jesus in that moment? Well, a lot. That's probably the honest answer. But shouldn't it be my ambition that when that moment comes, that the transformation that takes place would be a little rather than a lot? That's what God wants to accomplish in your life and my life. He wants to make me just a little bit more like Jesus. God did not give us His Word for our information, for our transformation. I have a friend that I grew up with in our church in Long Beach. I think he's maybe four or five years older than me, but I grew up with his younger brothers. and I ran into him at a memorial service last year. And he started talking to me about prophecy and the rapture and the tribulation and Jesus' return and all this stuff. And he's accumulated all this information and he can dump it out there as fast as you'll listen to it. But I find myself in that conversation with him wondering, he's got all this information But what difference has it made in this life? God did not give us our Bibles for our information. He gave it to us for our transformation. God has a plan and God has a goal. And that goal is to transform each one of us to be a little bit more like Jesus. Every day, every week, every year. That is God's goal. So, the logical question is, how does that happen? How does that take place in your life and my life. And so I want you to come with me to 2 Timothy chapter 3, because I believe this passage tells me everything I need to know about how that process happens. Paul is writing to the young pastor, Timothy. He has just commented on Timothy's faith and trust in the Lord Jesus from a childhood. He's heard the Scriptures. And then in verses 16 and 17, Paul writes these words to this young preacher. All Scripture is inspired by God. Literally, God breathed. God has breathed out the Scriptures. And it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. So that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. So all Scripture is God-breathed. By the way, this is a little, a little aside for your theological understanding. Which is inspired? The writers or the writings? 
the writings. You know, it's one thing for someone to say, I was inspired to write this beautiful song. Cool. I was inspired to, to write this poem. Cool. When God communicated His truth to the original authors, it is the writings that are inspired. They are God-breathed. And so Paul says, all Scripture is inspired of God and is profitable. So what is the profit, what is the benefit that God wants to give in your life and my life as we're in this process of being transformed? How does that happen? And so... I want you to picture this verse in the context of hiking a mountain trail. And you're hiking a mountain trail. And Paul says, as you're walking that trail, Scripture is profitable for teaching. Some translations use the word doctrine. God's Word tells us this is the path to walk on. That's what it teaches me. Walk on this path. Go this direction. God's Word is profitable to show me where the path of my life ought to be. He says it's profitable for teaching. It's also profitable for what? My translation says reproof. Yours might have another word. The idea is a a, a chastening, a warning. When do you need reproof and warning when you're walking on a mountain trail? You're off the trail. One of my younger brothers, we grew up hiking in Yosemite every year. My favorite place on the planet. And my brother Rick, we would be on the path and he'd be cutting across. Because the switchbacks, right? And so Rick's cutting across all the switchbacks. And my dad would holler at him, what? You're off the trail. And so God's Word does that. As I'm walking this path that He wants me to walk, God says, Time for reproof. You're off the path. You're not where you're supposed to be. Warning. Red lights. So when, the, when you get a warning that you're off the trail, then you not only need reproof, you also need... The next word is correction. How to get back on the path. And so God's Word shows us the path, tells us when we're off the path, and helps us to get back on the path. Teaching. Reproof. Correction. And then what do I need? Training. How to, how to stay on the path. That word training, by the way, the Greek word is, is, the root word is the word for child. It's the word that would be used for raising a child. You need to be trained in righteousness. And so this whole process of transformation, if I'm exposing my life to God's word, I'm going to be shown what the path is I need to be walking on. I'm going to be warned when I'm off the path. I'm going to be shown how to get back on the path and, and how to stay there. That's what I need in my life. Anybody get off the path ever in the course of your life? Multiple times. But it's God's Word that shows me where the path is, warns me when I'm off, shows me how to get back, and gives me instruction to stay on the path. And God's goal in doing that is what? Verse 17... <laughs> That every man and woman would be adequate. That word adequate is the idea of capable or proficient. Would be adequate, fully equipped for every good work. That's what God wants to do in my life. That's what He wants to do in your life. 
that we would be adequate. I remember I had a friend years ago in the church in Long Beach. And he would say, I'm adequate man. I said, what? What do you mean you're adequate man? He says, well, I can never be Superman, but I can be adequate man. <laughs> okay, go for it. Adequate, capable, proficient to do what God has called in your life to do and to accomplish. Whatever it is that God is calling you to do in your life, He wants to help you become proficient and capable, fully equipped to do what He's called you to do. How does He do that? Bible. God's Word. He wants to do that in my life. He wants to do that in your life. That is the, the process of transformation. So how many times in the course of, let's just pick a random week out of your life, last week. Um, how many times in the last seven days have you sat with your open Bible and read it? I don't want an answer, I'm just asking the question, okay? How many times did that happen? A recent study was done with 80,000 people who self-identified as Christians, Christ followers. And they were asked, how many times a week do you read your Bible? Second question they were asked is, what results uh, and consequences have you experienced in your life from reading your Bible? So the first question was, how many times a week do you read your Bible? And what does it accomplish? The survey said, sounds like, was that family feud? The survey says, and this wasn't 100 men, this was 80,000 people answered the survey. Reading your Bible one time a week, your life is totally indistinguishable from a non-believer. If you only read your Bible once a week. If you read your Bible twice a week, eh, it might be just a smidge better, but you're still pretty similar to the non-believer that's your neighbor, your co-worker. If you read your Bible three times a week, there's going to be some minimal impact in your life. But the thing that they discovered was, at four times a week, there's a quantum leap in the impact that the Bible has in a person's life at four times a week. Of course, if you know me, you know I would recommend seven days a week. Thank you. And so they discovered this difference between reading once, twice, three times, and four, five, six, seven times. And so what are the kinds of experiences that people had who were reading their Bibles four to seven times a week? Their survey said 30% identified feelings of loneliness that were diminished, decreased. 30%. Um, 40% said they experienced a difference, an improvement in bitterness and conflict in their relationships with family and friends and co-workers. Uh, 
said they, they experienced a, a more positive feelings, less spiritual stagnation in their life. 50%. 32% reported uh, less anger in their lives from reading their Bibles. 57% expressed improvement in their desires and consumption of alcohol. That's huge, 57%. And then this number, 61% demonstrated a, a decrease, don't know about elimination, but a decrease in viewing pornography because they read their Bible every day. And then the last one really caught me by surprise. People experienced opportunities, opportunities for faith sharing in their lives at an increase of over 200%. So, does God's Word transform a person's life? Absolutely. And so the question that just logically occurs to me is, so if a person is not experiencing this transformation in their life, if they're not experiencing improvements in their, their spiritual experience, their responses of joy, their relationships with other people, and on and on, if they're not experiencing those things, then can I logically deduce that they're not reading their Bible? On a regular basis. Is that a logical deduction from everything I just shared with you? Yes. And so God has a plan to transform your life and my life. He has a process He wants to use in your life and my life in the Scriptures. He wants us to become more like Jesus. And He wants to use God's Word. Because the culture around you is trying to do what? Squeeze you into that. Very good, Linda. You were listening. <laughs> wants to squeeze you into its mold. And what God wants to do is remold you. And I believe He wants to do that through this book. So my third, my third idea that I've wrestled with as I've thought about this assignment with this value is God has a plan. God has a process. And so what does this look like when it's all said and done? What does it look like? Well, from everything I've said, the obvious answer would be one word. It looks like... Someone say Jesus. Jesus is always the right answer to every question, right? So, Jesus becomes the, the ideal, ideal model, right? But I found myself drawn to one of my heroes in the Old Testament. Ezra was an amazing man of God. And if you come with me to Ezra chapter 7, the scriptures tell us that Ezra was a scribe. Uh, verse 6 of Ezra chapter 7 says he was skilled in the law of Moses. That was the reputation he had. He was a scribe. What was a scribe, by the way? A scribe was someone who copied the scriptures. They were also teachers of the Word of God. They not only copied the scriptures, producing copies, but they taught. They were the experts in the law. And so it says of Ezra, his reputation was, he was skilled in the law of the Lord. And he was entrusted by God with the task of bringing people back to Jerusalem after the 70 years of exile in Babylon. 
And one of the phrases that is repeated about this man over and over again in chapter 7 and chapter 8, the end of chapter 6, I'm sorry, chapter 7, verse 6, says the hand of the Lord his God was upon him. Is that a good thing? Would you like to have a confidence and assurance every single day that the good hand of your God is upon you? I sure would. Uh, Down in verse uh, 9, it says, The good hand of his God was upon him. If you turn the page over into chapter 8, you'll see that theme continue. Here was a man, his, his reputation was skilled in the law of God. His relationship with God was described as the good hand of God was upon him. And it would take me a whole other half an hour to flesh that out. But where I want to wind up is in verse 10. Because it tells us the reason. Why was God's good hand on Ezra and on his life and what he sought to accomplish? Well, if your translation is similar to mine, verse 9 says, the good hand of his God was upon him. And verse 10 begins with the word, for. Another way to express that is, because. Why was the good hand of God upon Ezra? Well, the scripture says this. He set his heart to do three things. To study the law of the Lord, to practice it, and to teach it. The Hebrew word to set his heart is a picture word of an archer with a bow and arrow. And to set his heart, the picture that's being drawn is an archer with an arrow on a bowstring aimed at a target. The set of his life, the aim of his life, the target of his life was three things. What are the three things that his life was aimed at? Study the law of the Lord. Practice it and teach it. The word study is another fascinating Hebrew word. Another one of those words that paints a picture. The word to study has the idea of to frequent, to wear a path. So it says Ezra set his heart to wear a path. Where was the path being worn in Ezra's life? In the Scriptures, he is wearing a path in the Scriptures. When we lived in Modesto, I, I didn't really inherit him. I had to spend money, which is the hardest, one of the hardest things I ever do in my life is spending money. But I was midwife for a group of miniature schnauzers. One of the families in the church had their, their dog was, was bred. Is that the right word? Breeded, bred. Anyway, it produced a litter of puppies. Half a dozen, six, I think. And uh, Helen sold all the puppies. So our process was successful. And then this one dog came back. Family brought him back. He couldn't walk in a straight line. He drifted. <laughs> and so they sold him a second time. Family brought him back. There's, this dog ain't right. And so Helen tells me, you know, I'm having trouble selling this dog. I said, well, I'll buy him. Okay. So I bought Henry and took him home. And Henry and I were buddies. And our home had two gates on either side. 
North side of the house, south side of the house. And when people would walk by the sidewalk out in front of the house, Henry would greet them at whichever end of the house they were coming to and would start barking. And they're walking down the sidewalk in front of my house. What's Henry do? Barking at this gate. And so every time somebody walked by, Henry was bark, 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 bark. So guess what happened in my backyard? I had a patch of dirt in my lawn. I had a patch of dirt about this wide in a half moon circle around the house. That dog wasn't right. But he wore a path in my backyard. Just like Ezra wore a path in the Scriptures. Ezra set his heart, arrow and bowsprit, bowstring to frequent the scriptures and then what's the second word practice now this is a really fascinating hebrew word Uh, it is used hundreds of times in the old testament most of the time it's translated with a simple two-letter english word there you go david do frequent it and do it As my friend Neil Cole says, listen to what Jesus tells you and do it. (laughs) Listen to what Jesus says and do it. Or perhaps another of our heroes, Yoda. Yoda says there is no try, only do. Or something like that. That's my paraphrase, I think. So Ezra set his life like an arrow on a target to frequent the scriptures, to do it, and to... Teach it. Pass it on. And I would tell you very honestly, one of my great joys in life is to see someone's life transformed to the point where they embrace Christ as Savior, they're growing and maturing in Him, they've fallen in love with the Scriptures, they're frequenting the Scriptures, seeking to obey the Scriptures, and they come to a point in life where there's opportunity for them to teach others. Maybe they're teaching their children. Maybe they have a Bible study at work. Maybe they lead one of the small groups at church. I don't know. But one of the great things that would excite me, you know, I got a group of guys on Tuesday night. By the way, guys, we have an awesome time on Tuesday nights. Highlight of my week, right? One of my great joys would be to be incredibly sick and have one of those guys say, no problem, I'll take over tonight. Is, Is that a success? That's who Ezra was. He set his heart to study the law of the Lord, to live it, and to teach it. And so Jesus is in the business of changing lives. We want to be in the business of changing lives. God is in the business of transforming people. From the point of coming to faith to the point, maybe like Ezra, Studying, doing, and teaching. God has a plan for your transformation. God has a process for your transformation. That process is right here. And the product of that transformation, well, Paul says it this way in Colossians chapter 1. I love this verse. In Colossians chapter 1, verses 28 and 29. 
Paul says, we proclaim Him. Who's the Him? Jesus. We, I told you, Jesus is always the right answer to any question. We proclaim Him, admonishing every man and woman, and teaching every man and woman with all wisdom, so that we may present every man or woman complete in Christ. Mature. Transformed. That's got, that's, Paul says, that's what it's all about. That's what I'm all about. That's what I'm up to. That's what I'm accomplishing. And then he says this in verse 29. For this purpose also I labor, striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. He says, I labor. Literally, the Greek word is to the point of exhaustion. I wear myself out with this. He says, I labor, striving. The Greek word that's translated here, striving, I would pronounce this way, agonizo. What does that word sound like? Agony, there you go. Paul says, I labor to the point of exhaustion, even agonizing to accomplish this. And what is it that he's trying to accomplish? Present every person complete, mature in their faith. To be just a little bit more like Jesus. That's what God's up to. And so, I asked myself a bunch of questions. My prayer is that we would be excited about God's plan of transformation. Are you excited that God wants to change who you are? Make you more like Jesus? You ought to be. My prayer is that our our church will live out this value. And that wherever teaching takes place, whether it's here on a Sunday morning, Sunday morning in a Bible study for our kids, our youth, our adults, midweek groups, that we will always be focused on obeying what God says. Transformation. Becoming more like Jesus. We're not just here to gather information and collect notes. Oh, Pastor Roy said that word means agony. Okay, that's cool. But so what? We're not just here to gather information. Am I excited about spiritual growth, spiritual maturity? I hope you are. If not, that might be a question to ask. If not, why not? Um, Are you regularly in God's Word? One, two, three times a week isn't going to make much difference. You heard me say earlier, I always vote for seven days a week. If I could vote for eight or nine days a week, I would, but that didn't happen. Am I regularly reading, meditating, studying? I'm in God's Word every day. Don't have to do it for half an hour. Five minutes is better than nothing, right? A few minutes in the Scriptures, a few verses. Sometimes that's a tough call. Some of you are reading with me this year in a chronological sequence through the Bible, and there's places where you get really bogged down, right? You get bogged down reading your Bible. What's the first book of the Bible that comes to your brain? Leviticus. Oh, my. And then you get into First and Second Chronicles. I'm, still, I'm getting to the end of Second Chronicles. I'm into Isaiah now, but I've still got to circle back to Second Chronicles. All those genealogies. <laughs> Numbers too, Linda. Yeah. But am I in God's Word? Every day. Not going to be transformed. You're not going to be changed. 
The world around you is going to squeeze you into its mold because your mind isn't being remolded by God's Word. If we're not in the Scriptures, if we're not reading and meditating, instead of becoming more and more like Jesus, we'll become more and more like our culture. Squeezed. There you go, Tom. Squeezed. Are you taking advantage of the opportunities to engage in God's Word with others? Sunday morning, midweek, wherever it happens. Take advantage of those opportunities. We need it in our lives. I do. So what needs to change? This is kind of my bottom line at the end. If you're going to experience transformation, if our church is going to experience transformation, if we're going to teach in a way that helps people be transformed to be more like Jesus, what needs to change? And so I ask myself these questions. What needs to change? My schedule? How I use my time? How many hours a week does the average person watch television? Too many. Um, What if you just took a half an hour of your normal TV watching time and sat alone with the Lord and read your Bible? Could that make a difference? What needs to change? My schedule? My priorities? What are the activities that dominate my life? Sometimes it's my companions. Who do I choose to hang out with? Are they molding and shaping me, or am I having an influence on them? Becoming a little bit more like Jesus. Jesus is in the business of changing lives. God wants to do that, and so do we. If you grew up in Sunday school like I did, you remember a little simple song. The B-I-B-L-E. Yes, that's the book for me. I stand alone on the Word of God. The B-I-B-L-E. The B-I-B-L-E. I take it along with me. I read and pray and then obey. Thank you. That O word is so hard, isn't it? I read and pray and then obey. The B-I-B-L-E. I would have sung it for you, but we're not going to do that. Lord, thank you that you're in the business of changing lives. Thank you that you're in the business of conforming and shaping us to be more like Jesus. And Lord, in our heart of hearts, for many of us this morning, perhaps we would acknowledge that we leave our lives open to the molding and influence of this world and this culture far too much. Our engagement with television, with movies, with social media, so much of that is shaping us in a completely different direction. And so, Lord, I pray this moment, even in this moment of time, that You will cause us to take inventory, to ask ourselves some honest questions about how we spend our time, about how often we open our Bibles. Lord, speak to us in a in a positive and significant way this morning. And we ask you to do that in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. You all have one of these little things with you this morning, right? No? Who said no? All right, we got a couple of people. So, if your week is like my week, you depend on this little thing every day, all day long, right?
And if you go out and get in your car in the morning to go to work or wherever you're going, and you're down the road 10 minutes from home, 15 minutes, <gasps> I forgot my phone. And inside you got this, this panicked feeling. I don't have my phone. What am I going to do? Wouldn't it be a wonderful thing as that was kind of our attitude about our Bibles? I know it's in your phone. Your... <laughs> you know, I counted this morning. If you, if you have the Bible app called Version, 72 English translations. I have an app called Bible Is, B-I-B-L-E, Is. And it has the scriptures in, I was scrolling trying to count. Over a hundred different languages. But put that aside for the moment. You do depend on this. You count on it. You encounter a problem. I'm trying to fix that washing machine. And for some reason, I'm going to Google that. And you can Google it and get all the information, all the instructions, everything you need, right? YouTube videos. Unless you're like me, the videos don't help me. And I, I found myself thinking about this. We are so dependent on our phones. We panic when it's not with us. You know, when I, when I get out of my car, I hit my pockets. I got my wallet, I got my phone. Okay, I'm good to go. I go out and get in my car. Wallet, phone, car keys, good to go. And I walk out in the garage, get in my car, and I go, wallet, key, where's my phone? I left my phone. I can't find, and I go back in the house, I can't find my phone. If you're married, you do what I do when you, can't call your, when you can't find your phone. What do you do? I ask my wife to call me so I can find my phone. And so we're, we're, we have this dependent relationship on this mechanical device. And honestly, my phone is never any further away from me than right there. And I have long arms. I have a 36-inch sleeve on my shirt, so i got a long arm. But my phone is never any further away from me than that. I might miss a message. I might miss a phone call. Well, guess what? Your Bible has a message, multiple message, and guess who's calling? Yeah, let's... See, you finally... The best answer to every question is Jesus. Wouldn't it be a wonderful thing if we could be so dependent on our Bibles that we'd always be checking to make sure it was about just that far away? God wants to transform your life and He wants to use His Word to do it.